Amen. One of the um, new buzzwords of the era that we live in that did not exist even a decade ago was the word superfood. Anybody heard that word? And a superfood is technically a a, a term that we attach to an edible substance that serves many, many beneficial purposes in the body when it is ingested. And so, you know, we hear a lot about coconut oil. You know, and coconut oil is a superfood because of all of the uh, benefits and properties that it has when it's ingested. We hear about turmeric, you know, and what all the benefits that that turmeric has when we eat turmeric and the things that it does in our bodies, the healing properties, and uh, all of all of what it does for us. And there's you know a number of of these superfoods that are just so beneficial and so healthful in all. And and I'm and I know that they are. You know, there's something to all that God. God made it, everything that he made is good. But there's one thing that almost all superfoods have in common, is that if you eat them by themselves, they don't taste super. <laughs> <You know? laughs> there's substances that we would uh, m- most commonly avoid in and of themselves, or if we're going to ingest them, we put them in something else to kind of cover the strength of their flavor or texture or whatever uh, other quirky thing that they have about them. But nevertheless, they are superfoods and they accomplish uh, the things that God gave them to accomplish. Now, in the Christian life, there is a spiritual uh, counterpart to every physical thing that we know of in the universe. And just as the Bible, the Word of God, is likened unto food physically, and it kind of does the same thing spiritually for us that food does for us physically, there are superfoods in the Christian faith as well. Things that God has put on the earth for us, maybe invisible things, spiritual things, but things that accomplish much when they are a part of our lives. And one of the greatest spiritual superfoods that I know of that has no parallel or match in terms of all of the things that it can accomplish is the superfood of suffering. And just like the superfoods that we would not eat by themselves because we don't prefer their flavor or their texture, so also the spiritual superfood of suffering, though it accomplishes much in our lives, we never would choose it would we, if we had a choice of the things that God has laid out for us to accomplish what he wants to accomplish within our lives. But nevertheless, God, as a faithful father, hides it in our food, doesn't he? And he puts it in our path, and from time to time, it's important that every one of us experience suffering in one form or another because of all the things that it does. Now, the epistle of 1 Peter that we're studying was written to a group of Christians that were suffering. They were suffering various different types of trials for various different reasons. And so Peter wrote a letter to the Christians that were suffering, and the topic of the letter is suffering. And so Peter, in writing this letter, has two purposes for it. Number one is to give sense or reason to the suffering In other words, to tell us why God allows and ordains suffering in our lives. So he tells us some of the things that this super suffering (laughs) substance does within us when we take it in. But then the other reason why Peter writes is also to give us some instruction when we're going through seasons of suffering. 
things that we're to do, mindsets that we're to have, behavior that we're to exercise and employ when we're going through some of the things that God has designed for us to go through. And his intent is that we would, though we're suffering, have a little bit of peace and understanding and some wisdom and direction when we go through the things that we go through, because we all go through suffering. And so he gives sense to the reasons why we suffer. He tells us that we're being refined, that the very substance of what we are and who we are is being changed through the sufferings that we endure and that we go through. God uses suffering to change us from worthless to worthwhile. He uses suffering to do it. He also tells us that we are being shaped by our sufferings. In chapter 2, he uses the word living stones that are being shaped and prepared to be fitted as a place in his eternal house. And so God uses the sufferings and the difficulties of our lives to shape us, to prepare us for our eternal habitation in heaven. We're also told that one of the reasons that we suffer is because we're living in a world that is not our home. Now, anytime you're not at home, there's a tendency or the propensity for suffering to accompany that circumstance, right? I mean, there's no place like home. And when you're not home and you don't have the amenities of home or the comforts of home or the familiarity of home or the culture of home then we're vulnerable to many trials that can happen to us. And we're not home. Peter says that we're strangers and pilgrims in this world. And thus suffering is going to be a byproduct of just the fact that we're not in heaven. Someone said one time that it ain't heaven till heaven, right? And it's true. And then finally, suffering serves the purpose of revealing Christ to others. That's what he talked about in our study last week in chapter 3. And so whether it's an unbelieving spouse who lives alongside of a Christian and watches the way that they conduct themselves counter to the culture that they're in and that they can see Christ through the lifestyle and the behavior of how that person navigates suffering or whether it's a persecutor or an unbeliever who is somehow linked with the life of a believer that can then observe the way that they handle the difficulties that they're facing that that is a witness and a testimony to them to the truth of God and it testifies to them that there is hope that goes beyond just what this world can provide. And so suffering serves so many purposes in the Christian faith and Peter then gives that to us and then he gives us the instruction of how we're to conduct ourselves in this thing of suffering that we go through, that we're to have patience, endurance, quietness of heart and Christ-likeness in our behavior as we uh, live it. And so the exhortation of chapter 4, and chapter 4 really kind of finishes the theme. As he goes into chapter 5, he, he kind of closes out the letter and, and lands, lands the plane of his thoughts, so to speak. So he really finishes now in chapter 4 his theme on this suffering thing. And his final word to us that he gives us here now in chapter 4 is that we as Christians should embrace Embrace suffering, that it isn't something that we should shy away from or be afraid of or cringe at the, at the, the, you know, the thought of it, but rather it's something that we should welcome and it's something that we should embrace because of what it does within our lives. And so he begins now in verse one as he takes us through this and he says, for as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh. 
arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And so he begins with that word there, for as much. And what that word literally is, is a word that means for the same reason, or for as much the same reason. It's not in as much. In as much would be quantifying or to the, to the same measure or proportion of the sufferings of Christ. He's going to talk about that later on when we get down into verse 13. He's going to use the word in as much. But right now he uses the word for as much. And what that means is that for the same reason that Jesus suffered, we should arm ourselves with the mindset that we're going to embrace suffering with that same mindset. Now, what was the reason why Jesus suffered? If we're going to suffer for as much as the same reason that Jesus suffered or arm ourselves with that kind of mindset, then what was it? What was the reason that Jesus subjected himself to suffering? Well, first of all and foremost, Jesus embraced suffering for the sake of the salvation of the lost. The reason why Jesus left the glory of heaven in his father's side and humbled himself to become a man and to take on human flesh and to make himself vulnerable to all of the pain and the difficulty that we face in this life and to make himself vulnerable living in a culture and in a society that was hated by the rest of the world and to choose to come into a family that would be a family that experienced poverty and live in a lower income and to be in a place where he would be rejected and to live a life wherein he would be despised and rejected and unrecognized. And then for him to suffer the way that he suffered and to give himself so willingly to those that whipped him and pierced him and hung him on a cross, the reason why he did those things is because there would be no other way for mankind to be saved unless he did it. And so part of the reason why Jesus embraced the sufferings was because he knew the well-being that it would serve for other people. And so we're to arm ourselves with that same mind. We're to recognize that sometimes when God allows suffering to come into our lives, the purpose for that suffering has nothing to do with us, but it has everything to do with those that are watching us, for those that are linked with our lives. And the effect that God's grace in our suffering is going to have on their observation of the things that we're going through. And so Jesus suffered partially for the sake of saving the lost. The second reason why Jesus suffered was because it served the Father's will. Jesus would say, I do always only those things that please my Father. Jesus was relentless about being where his father wanted him to be. And it didn't matter what the father put in front of him, whether it was sleeplessness, or whether it was tireless service, or whether it was difficult people, or whether it was the suffering of the cross. If it was the father's will, then Jesus knew there was no place safer or better for him to be than where his father wanted him to be. And what Peter's telling us is that we're to arm ourselves with that same mind, And that is that if God has ordained suffering in our lives right now, in any arena of our life or to any degree, then we're to bow the knee of our will before that circumstance and we're to say, Father, I don't know why, I don't know for how long, and I don't know how intense this is going to get. But if this is your will for my life right now, 
By faith, I believe that there's no better or safer place for me to be than in the midst of this trial. That was how Jesus approached and embraced suffering. And then finally, the reason why Jesus embraced suffering is because it would bring the Father glory. Jesus was driven, not only by the Father's will, but by living for the Father's glory. That's everything that he did. I do always only those things that please the Father. He knew that the example and purpose of all of life that he was demonstrating was to glorify and, and, and bring beauty and majesty to the Father. And for, for any of the Father's children, sometimes we glorify him through our sufferings. And so we're to arm ourselves with the same mindset. Now what's interesting to me in all of this is that Jesus never suffered because he was out of the Father's will. Jesus never suffered because he was being punished for something that he did wrong. And yet he still suffered. And what that tells me is that much of the suffering that we go through isn't disciplinary. It isn't corrective in its nature. It has something to do with something that we can't see and something that we don't understand. And yet it's a superfood that God ordains that we eat because it's good for us and it's good for those that are around us. And so he says, for as much as Christ suffered also for us, in the flesh, that we're to arm ourselves with the same mind, and then here's the bonus. Here's what you get thrown in, besides the fact that you're glorifying the Father, and you're in His will, and you're helping others. He says this concerning suffering, another benefit of this great superfood. He says, for he that has suffered in the flesh has also ceased from sin. Now, I don't know if you've experienced the reality of this yet in your life. But pain has an incredibly purifying effect. Have you found that to be true? Have you ever thought about the reason why God created our bodies with nerve endings? Because what nerve endings do is that they teach us where boundaries are. They teach us what the threshold, the temperature threshold of what our, our skin and our flesh can endure is. It teaches us the, 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 the laws of inertia in science. And, you know, it teaches us to duck and to avoid certain things. You know, pain serves a great purpose. Pain is an incredible teacher. And so one of the other byproducts that suffering produces in our lives is that it gives us a freedom from the things that will ultimately be a detriment or that will destroy us. Did you know that sin, amongst the many other things that it does, Sin deadens our spiritual senses. God gives us, when we're saved, spiritual senses. Don uh, McClure, who shared here this past Sunday, did an incredibly beautiful job of, of illustrating the, the, the senses of the other world that God has given to us. The spiritual sight and hearing and the spiritual sensing and discerning and the spiritual tasting of God's presence and just the, the incredible uh, um, the, the things that he's given to us. But sin deadens those senses. When sin is present in our lives, it blocks our hearing so that we can't hear the voice of the Lord. It kills our vision so that we can't see the things that He is desiring to show us. It deadens our discernment so that we become dull of, dull of, of sensing and we can't understand what's going on in the spiritual realms around us. We become blinded to His will and His presence is blocked off from us. It isn't as though He's withdrawn or that He's gone. He says He's with us. But sin deadens those things. 
And so sometimes the sufferings that we go through seek to remove that sin from our lives so that our senses can be revived and restored and matured and cultivated and those things can become more precious to us and more real. Sin not only deadens our senses, but it also feeds our lower nature. It feeds the carnal side of us, the fleshiness in us that is the enemy of God. And it strengthens that so that the spirit cannot thrive and it keeps us bound so that we're in chains of darkness. And ultimately, if we persist in sin and we allow it and God allows it to rule in our lives, sin ultimately kills us. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, it says that the wages of sin is death. And so if we persist in sin, ultimately it blinds us, it keeps us bound, and it takes our life. And God allows and ordains that suffering, the pain that we go through, teaches us to hate sin. The Bible says that the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. And it's also the beginning of wisdom. And so God allows suffering to do this and accomplish this in our lives. And so Peter says that we should no longer live the rest of our time, in verse 2, in the flesh, that's the lower nature, unto the lusts of men, but rather to the will of God, that we should make it our desire and our aim that we want to live in the spirit and not according to the flesh. For the time past of our life, speaking of the days before we knew Jesus Christ, the days when we were in darkness and alienated from the life of God, for those times may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles, he says. When, and then he describes the old life, we walked in lasciviousness. Lasciviousness just means uncontrolled, unbridled lust. Walking after the lusts of our body, the desires of our flesh and of our mind. Lusts, generically, he lists next, which is just covetousness and seeking after the things of the world. Excess of wine, that's the excess of drunkenness and intoxication. Revelings, which is kind of a King James word that means kind of running with the pack, a party spirit being absorbed into the current of the culture, kind of going with the flow of the tide, which is against God. Banquetings, which is just another King James word, which means to party. So going from uh, party to party or from um, alehouse to alehouse or bar to bar. And abominable idolatries, that is the things that, that in the world are contrary to what God calls us to live according to. All of those things kind of um, define what Peter calls here the will of the Gentiles. And then he says, wherein they think it strange, they being those that you used to run with, that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. And so this whole old life that we used to live before we came to him, he says that we are no longer to live according to the life of the old man. Now, there are two kingdoms right now that are coexisting side by side right here in this room and right here in this planet. There is the kingdom of this world, which is what Peter kind of is referring to here when he talks about the Gentiles in the old way, the kingdoms of this world. And at the same time, there is the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, which has been established. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's an invisible kingdom. But nevertheless, it is very real and it is very existent even here right now. 
And you and I, as we are sitting here right now, if you and I are Christians in this place, meaning that we belong to Jesus Christ, then we are officially citizens of the kingdom of God, but we're living simultaneously in both. We are citizens of heaven and we're living there. Right now, we have a place in heaven. It's among us. That's why we sense it. That's why we can smell it. That's why God says, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That's how Stephen, if you can remember Acts chapter 7, when he was dying, could be standing with his feet on earth, and yet he could say, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Because both things are existent side by side. So we're citizens of heaven, and we're actually there in a sense. But physically speaking, in our mortal bodies, we're residents of earth. This is where we live. Now, both of those two kingdoms, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of heaven, which are diametrically opposed, they both have a constitution. The law of this world is do whatever you want. Obey the directives and impulses of your flesh. Do what your body and your mind tell you to do. Take your cues and your directions from yourself and from what the world says is right or okay or acceptable or what they're doing. That's the constitution of this world. The satanic Bible opens with the verse, do what thou wilt will be the whole of the law. And that is the constitution and foundation of what this world stands upon. Do what you will will be the whole of the law. And so the whole citizenship of this world lives according to the rule, well, I was just following my heart. I was just doing what my heart told me to do. Isn't that what we're supposed to do? Isn't that what all the songs and the poems and the, 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 the films, and isn't that what the whole culture says? We just follow our heart? That's the constitution of this world. The constitution of the kingdom is completely different and completely in opposition to the constitution of this world. The constitution of heaven is what God says in his word. Is what God says is right. That we're to die to ourselves. That the flesh is at enmity with God. That the kingdoms of this world are perishing. For all that is in the world, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world, listen, is passing away with its affections and its lusts. But whoever does the will of God will abide forever. And so the constitution of heaven is the will of God, whatever it is that he states. And the Bible tells us that you and I, as citizens of heaven, though we are physically present on earth, that we're to live according to the constitution of heaven and not the constitution of this earth. And thus Peter says that the time past of our life may suffice for us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. That's the word that he uses in verse 3. To have wrought the, word, the work of the Gentiles. You know what the word wrought means? It means to work out with agony. To work out, to wrestle out, to agonize through the will of the Gentiles. And I think that's an incredibly powerful and perfect word that's used by Peter to describe what it is like to live as a citizen of this world according to its constitution. Before I came to Christ, I, like everyone else in the world, lived according to that law. Do what you will will be the whole of the law. 
If people asked me prior to my salvation what I thought the meaning of life was, my answer to them was, I would say, I believe that the meaning of life is that everyone should be able to do what they want and no one should interfere or interject their opinions, beliefs, or ideals on anyone else. That everyone should just live and let live. That was my philosophy and my worldview. I didn't even know that where, that where that was coming from. But that was what I felt in my heart was the right way to live. And I lived that way in my life for 19 years. And when I was 19 years old, God, by his grace, allowed me to see what that looks like when that is the norm in a, in a society. I went with my friend for a one-week-long trip on a tour with a band and we were locked into a military base for three days where there was no authority, nobody telling you what you should or shouldn't do, nobody restricting anything that you should do, and everyone could just do what they wanted and live the way they wanted, and no one interfered or interjected their beliefs, ideals, or opinions on anyone else. And after three days, the, you know, the days leading up and then the three days on that military base, within a week after returning back from that trip, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. Because I saw where that ideal ultimately lives. God, by his grace, allowed me to rot, to prove out through experience what the kingdom of this world produces in a life. And he allowed me, by his grace, to see that it produces nothing but damnation, misery, and death. And that it's not worth it to live that kind of life any longer. And so Peter says, if God has saved you out of a life that brings and produces that, then why would we any longer give ourselves to living that kind of a way? He's saying, listen, allow suffering to have its work in your life to set you free from the sins that held you bound in the things that produce nothing but death in you. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles, walking in all of those things. But do you know what the end of all of those things are? Notice what he says in verse 5. He says that those that live that way, one day they will give account to him that is ready to judge the living and the dead. That there's a day coming that every human being is going to stand before God Almighty and they're going to give an account for the things that they did while they were in this life. They're going to give an account for the things that they heard, the things that they believed, and the things that they did in spite of and in addition to the things that they believed. The living and the dead are all going to give an account before God for the things that they've done. And Peter says that's a fearful thing. He goes on to say, for this cause, or for for this cause, was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. Now, when I read this verse this week, I smiled and I looked up to heaven and I said, thank you, Lord. You gave me something to chew on for a week. You know, This is an extremely difficult verse to understand, isn't it? I mean, to look at these words that Peter says here and try to make sense of them. For this cause? What cause? For the cause of the fact that everyone, the living and the dead, are going to give account before the throne of God. So for that cause, the cause of judgment and account, was the gospel preached to them that are dead. Okay, where in the Bible are we ever called to preach the gospel unto the dead? That's confusing part number one. 
Then he says, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh. If the verse ended there, we could do something with it. Because, you know, they can be judged, the lost, those that have rejected God, the Gentiles. You know, they, 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 they had the gospel preached unto them, now they're dead. You know, they're judged according to men in the flesh. Okay, maybe, but Peter's just going to finish it this way. He says, but live according to God in the Spirit. Tough verse, isn't it? So what in the world is Peter talking about here in uh, in this verse when he talks about um, the dead being preached to, uh, judged according to men in the flesh, living according to God in the spirit? I consulted some commentaries on this because I thought, you know, I just want to hear what some other people have to say. And here's the conclusion that I came to after uh, just kind of like looking up everything I had access to is that there is not a person that has ever lived that really has a clue what this verse means <laughs> or why it's here. But let me give you three things, and you can take your pick. Or you can come up with, with your own or, or pray about it and see what God might show you. Number one, and I won't spend too much time here because we've got ground to cover. Number one is that Peter, in the context of these verses, was absolutely convinced that the second coming was going to take place in his lifetime. It tells us in verse 5 that God was already ready to judge the living and the dead. That's the key word in verse 5 if you look at it. He said that we're going to give an account to him that is ready, that he is now ready to judge the living and the dead. In verse 7, which is the following verse right after this, he says, but the end of all things is at hand. Be therefore sober and watch unto prayer. And so Peter was absolutely convinced, and in the context of saying this, he is thinking about the fact that Jesus Christ is going to appear at any moment. And that was the belief in the day that Peter wrote these words. Everyone believed in those days that Jesus was going to return before they died. When Jesus spoke to Peter and John after the resurrection, Jesus told Peter, when you're old, they're going to lead you where they're not. And Peter immediately looked at, at John and said, what's going to happen to him? And Jesus said, if he stays alive until I come, what does that matter to you? And so it became a common belief in the early church that Jesus was going to come back in their lifetime and they lived their lives as though Jesus was going to appear at any time. Now, every generation has had good reason to believe that Jesus would return in their lifetime. God has made it so that every generation has good reason to believe that Jesus is going to come in their lifetime. Because God commands us to believe and live like he's going to come back in our lifetime. They all happen to be wrong and we happen to be right but nevertheless, every generation has. Now, if Peter believed that Jesus was going to return in his lifetime, then that would cause confusion and questioning in the minds of the believers when people would die before the second coming of Christ. What happened to those that were martyred? What happens to those that died, that just died of natural causes since Jesus rose and since he hasn't returned yet? What's going to happen to them? And so what Peter is saying is that the gospel was preached to them, and even though they're dead, martyred or past, they might be judged according to men in the flesh, wherein we can look at their lives and evaluate their walk and see the things that they did, but they're alive to God in the spirit. 
That is, they've just gone into eternity ahead of us. That's what's happened to those. Now, we know this was a concern in those days because Paul addressed it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. He said to that church, he said, I don't want you to be sorrowful concerning those that have already died as though they're lost. And then he explains that, no, God just is going to bring them with him. They've gone ahead of us into their eternal habitation. It'll happen for us at the rapture. And so that's one possibility of what Peter's talking about in verse 6. A second possibility is that this is a reference back to chapter 3, verse 19 and 20, where it says that Jesus, when he was crucified, that during those three days after he was crucified, that he preached to the spirits that were in prison that were sometime disobedient. So during those three days, Jesus preached to two groups of people. He preached to the unrighteous dead and he preached to the righteous dead. To the unrighteous dead, he said, nanny, nanny, boo-boo, I did it. You're in big trouble. To the right, he, I'm paraphrasing. That's, that's the living Bible, the New Living Translation, the message. I think all of those translations word it that way. Nanny, nanny, boo-boo. That's, that's the word that they, they use, you know. To the righteous dead, he looked at them and he said, it is finished. What you believed in, what you gave your lives to live for, what you've been waiting for all of this time, the price has now been paid. It's been sealed in my blood. It's time to move into eternity. And he emptied out what was formerly called paradise. And he led captivity captive and brought them into glory. And so it could be a reference to the gospel being preached to the dead, the unsaved dead hearing the righteous standard that Jesus met the criteria for the fulfillment of righteousness, and thereby sealing their damnation. That's a possibility, but I doubt it. I doubt that's what this is referring to. And then number three, and this is the one that I I think is probably the most likely, what Peter is trying to get at here in verse six, is that what he's saying, look again at it, he says, for this cause was the gospel And and, and just highlight that word in your mind. Was the gospel preached also to them that are dead? And when he talks about the dead, he's not talking about those that are deceased, but rather he's talking about the spiritually dead. The Bible says that when a person doesn't know Jesus Christ, they're dead while they yet live. Paul the Apostle said in Ephesians chapter 2, he said, For you has he made alive who were dead in your trespasses and in your sins. If a person isn't spiritually reborn, then in God's eyes they're already dead even if their heart hasn't stopped beating yet. And so what Peter is saying here is that for this cause, the gospel was preached to them that are dead. The dead being the Gentiles that he spoke about in verses 3 through 5 that are going to give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. Why? That they might be judged according to men in the flesh, meaning that the standard of God's perfection through Jesus Christ has been preached unto them, and thus they're judged according to that standard, just like everybody else. But they might live unto God in the Spirit, meaning that if they believe and repent of their sins, then they can have eternal life, just like everyone else. So the Gentiles that he was referring to back up at the top of the chapter had the gospel preached unto them so that the standard would be set that if they refuse it, they'll be damned. 
But if they believe and repent, they can be saved, just like what happened to you and I. So Peter says, for this cause was the gospel preached then unto them. But verse 7, moving on, the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. Now, in one sense, when Peter says these words that the end of all things is at hand, he was wrong. In the context of Jesus' immediate return in his lifetime, Peter was wrong. Jesus did not return physically and usher in the kingdom age during the lifetime of Peter. But in another sense, Peter is absolutely right. And in that sense is this, is that there will not be another dispensation of time before the end of all things takes place. When we look at the scripture in its complete narrative, we see that there are different time segments when God dealt with men in different ways. In the Garden of Eden, God dealt with man in a certain way. It was just one rule, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But those days ended, and they ended with the judgment of Adam being cast out of the garden. And a new era began, it was the era of human conscience. And God dealt with men according to their conscience, dealing with them in their heart, speaking to them through their conscience. There was no law, there was no law of Moses, there was nothing, it was just conscience. That was ended at the flood, there was a judgment because man turned so far from God that God had to judge the world and that ushered in another era, an era of human government where man would legislate and man would hold man accountable for the actions of man. And that went all the way up until the law came by Moses. Then God began to deal with men in a new age called the age of law where God gave man the moral code of his holiness, the Ten Commandments, and the Levitical system. And he gave us the choice of whether or not we would obey and walk in his commands and his edicts and his statutes, human law. That ended, that era, on the cross of Jesus Christ, when the law was fulfilled in his person and the offenses and transgressions of the law were placed exclusively upon him while he was there on the cross, the judgment of God being placed upon Jesus for the breaking of the law. And when Jesus rose from the grave and the Holy Spirit came into the earth, it began what is the final era of God's dealing with men and women. And that is the age of grace. And that's what we're a part of, or the church age, it's also called. Those two are one and the same. And during this age, we deal with God and we come to him through the priesthood of Jesus Christ. We don't come by the law, We don't come by conscience. We don't come by works. We don't come by government. We come by Christ. And we have access to God and relationship with God and citizenship in heaven because of what he's provided through the person of his son. That's the age that we're living in right now. There will not be another age. This is it. When the rapture of the church takes place and God wraps up this age, it will be done. The gospel will be completed in a sense. And so the end of all things is at hand in the context that the last days began on the day of Pentecost and we're still in them today. Now, I believe that we are in the hindermost part of those last days. When you look at the things that are going on in the world today and hold them up against Scripture and what Jesus said the world would look like when he would return, I don't see how things can continue to go on much longer than they are. I read an article today that just... just. It just dumbfounded me. I didn't actually even read the article. I just read the headline. Do you know what? Maybe you saw it. It said, <laughs> it said, controversy and complaining after transgender wins female weightlifting contest. 
I thought that is the, the most, the most ridiculous thing I have ever heard in my life. I mean, think about how much time goes into preparing for a weightlifting competition. That's a lot. The amount of money that goes into planning and organizing that competition, the judging, and, and then all of a sudden you have a man come on the stage, beat all the women, take the trophy home, and everybody's standing there looking going, what, what in the world just happened? You know, <laughs> This is crazy. And just to think about the days that we're living in, they're unlike any other days that have ever been in the history of the world. Peter says that the end of all things is at hand, and that has never been more true than in the days that we're living in right now. And so what are we to do in light of that? He tells us three things. He says, number one, be sober. Be sober. Jesus would say this in Luke chapter 21, verse 34. Jesus would say, take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged, overwhelmed, overburdened with surfighting and drunkenness. That means to be in a spiritual stupor, in a confused state of mind and the cares of this life so that that day comes upon you unawares. That the ultra busyness of our schedules and the ultra concern that we have for the things of this world and the things of this life can make us drunk so that we're not recognizing the significance of the days that we're living in. And Jesus warns us to take heed that that doesn't happen. He says, for as a snare shall it come on all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch, therefore, and pray always. Circle those two words. Watch and Pray always that you may be accounted worthy to escape all these things and that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Now the opposite of spiritual drunkenness and confusion is spiritual sobriety, which means that we have an awareness of the days that we're living in, that we have an acute sense of what's going on in the spiritual realm, that there's a connection between us and heaven, that is the kingdom that we're citizens of, and so that we're aware with sobriety of how we're to live our lives and what God is doing in the days that we're living in. That's what it means to be sober. And Peter says, because the end of all things is at hand, be sober, and then secondly, watch unto prayer. What did Jesus say? Watch and pray that you might be accounted worthy to escape all these things and to stand before the Son of Man. What does it mean to watch? Listen, to watch means to know what God says is going to happen, compare it with what's happening, and then make a proper assessment of where we are and what we're supposed to do. That's what it means to watch. Now, the one necessary ingredient for effective watching is that we have to be students of the Bible. We can't know what we're watching for if we don't know what God said we're to watch for, right? And so it's essential that in any day that we live in, that we're students of the scripture, that we're given to the things of God, that we understand what the will of God is in the way of God and the plan of God for what's coming upon the earth. We've got to know God's will and God's heart, not just for end times things, but for all of Christendom. We must be Christians in the sense that we understand what it means to be Christians. It happens by the word of God. Prayer is the counterpart of it. Prayer is our connection with heaven, the relationship that we have with God. 
It's where we take the things that we're seeing, the things that we're feeling, and the things that we're experiencing, and we bring them to God in prayer that's dedicated to Him, specific for the purpose, and we say, God, what do you want me to do with my life? Where do you want me to be? What is the meaning of these trials? What do these scriptures mean that you're showing to me? And that there's a relationship and an interaction that's happening between heaven and earth. And Peter is saying it's essential that these things be a part of our lives in the days that we're living in. That we are aware of the days we're living in, that we're watching and that we're praying. That we're reading our Bibles and that we're praying. So essential for the Christian in the day that we live in. And above all things, verse 8, have fervent charity or fervent love among yourselves, for love will cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality to one another without grudging. He says above all else, he says it's of the utmost importance that there be a fervent, that means a boiling over, a passionate love that we have for each other in the body of Christ. We can't overemphasize it. I know it came up last week. I won't beat it to death again this week. But for there to be unity and for there to be Christian love that we have for one another in the body of Christ is so essential. Not only because we're going to need each other as the days get darker, but also because of the testimony it is to the watching world when they see us loving one another. Peter says it's valuable. It must not be ignored. We must love one another and we must use hospitality towards one another without grudging. And then he moves into our ministry. He says in verse 10, As every man... Now, every man means every one of us, right? That means no one is excluded from what Peter is about to say. Every man has received the gift, even so minister or serve in or give away the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Everyone who is born again, when they are born again, is given spiritual gifts. Every one of us is given spiritual graces. Something from God that's unique to us that is to be employed and used for the service of men. Every one of us is from it. And what Peter is saying here is that God is one light and we are a prism and every one of us reflects a different color of that one light and that we're to let that light shine and use the thing that God has given to us in the best way that we can so that we can be good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, if the nature of your gift or what God's called you to do be to speak for him, whether it be to evangelize or to share or to teach or to prophesy, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. What does that mean, the oracles of God? It means let him speak as though the presence of God is inside that speech. With the anointing and the unction that God gives to the words so that it goes past the mind and into the heart. One of the things that I do before I ever open up the Bible to teach it is I beg God that he would come into the words that are being spoken. That his presence and his unction, that his spirit would fill the things that are being said. That as we, each Wednesday, each Sunday, whenever we come together, we open up our Bibles, that his presence comes into the room so that there's a sense that the things that we're hearing are coming from another world. That they're being empowered by another source. That it isn't just the human mind giving things away, but that there's, there's something spiritual, something eternal, something powerful about it. That's what it means when it says, let them speak as the oracles of God. He says, if any man minister, to minister is to serve. 
then let him do it according to the ability which God gives. So in other words, God doesn't call us to serve beyond our capacity or beyond our ability, but according to it. And that should take the burden off of some of us that think that we have to do more than we do. We're to serve according to what God has given to us. And then here's our motive, he says. That, and here's the reason now, it's a reason word, here's the reason why we serve. That God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Listen to me here. The only acceptable motive for anything that we do in Christ's name the exercising of our gifts, the serving in a ministry, the sharing of the gospel with someone else, the teaching of a Bible study, the encouraging word that we give to someone, the gift that we give in secret, the only acceptable motive for any service that we render to God or to his people is that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Much of the reason why our service falls flat and doesn't accomplish anything and bears very little fruit is because the motivation behind our service is other than the glory of God. We serve for selfish reasons. What we're going to get out of it, the recognition that we'll receive, our name being attached to the deed that's done or to the ministry that's planted or the work that's performed. None of that is any valid servant reason or motivation for it at all. Jesus said this in John chapter 13. He said, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. We like that, right? He goes on. He says, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. In other words, when the motive for our asking is that the Father is glorified, that moves the hand of God to answer our prayers. We're to be motivated by the glory of God. In John chapter 15, when Jesus talked about the vine and the branches and the fruit that would come out of our lives, he said these words. He said, herein is my Father glorified. So how do we glorify God? Herein, here it is, that you bear much fruit and that your fruit should remain. In other words, for us to lead fruitful lives, who, who, anybody here want to lead a fruitful life? <laughs> I want to lead a fruitful life. I don't want to come to the end and be like, well, I bore very little. A couple thorns, a couple you know, prickers, didn't do much for God. No, I want to be fruitful. So how can I bear a fruitful life and bring glory to God? Daily, I bring my heart to Him and I say, God, make the motive for everything I do to bring you glory. That nothing else matters in this life. God, let my name perish. God, let everything that's attached to me or my memory, let it perish and die. But God, if I can serve, if my life can be poured out for your glory, then Lord, let that be my reason for living. And he says, in that I can ask what I will, and it's attached to the promise that there'll be much fruit attached to my service. Wondering why your life's not bearing fruit? It could be as simple as asking yourself the question, what's the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing? When our motive is the glory of God, much fruit begins to birth out of our lives. Beloved, in concluding, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. As though some strange thing has happened to you. Don't count it. Oh, why is this happening? Why am I suffering? Why why is this going on? Saying, listen, don't count it as a strange thing. But rejoice. Rather than sorrowing, 
rejoice. Why? And here's the other word. In as much as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. In other words, now not for as much. That was the reason why Jesus suffered. Now it's in as much as Jesus suffered. That means to the same degree. Now, has anybody in here suffered to the same degree that Jesus suffered when he lived on this earth? No, Hebrews tells us that we have not yet resisted unto blood and striving against sin. Not one of us has suffered as much as Jesus has. But here's the promise that Peter gives us. That to the degree that we suffer with him, we will also be to that same degree glad when he appears at his coming. In other words, the sufferings that we endure are rewardable work and they're worth it. Every penny. That it's worth it, the sufferings that we go through. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Paul the Apostle said, For I perceive that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which will be revealed in us. And so Peter says, don't count it as a strange thing, but rather rejoice because to the degree that you suffer and and fellowship with him in those sufferings, you're going to be glad when he appears with exceeding joy. If you're reproached for the name of Christ, happy are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, that is the persecutor, he is evil spoken of. But on your part, he is glorified. When you behave in a trial, God is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? This is one of the most fearful and should be most awakening verses in all of the New Testament. That judgment must first begin at the house of God. Unfortunately, we're out of time for tonight. And I'm not going to rush through this because I think it's of the utmost importance in the days that we live in. And so we will pick up next week right there in verse 17, talk about uh, the potential and the opportunity that we have in the days that we live in to see God move in a very powerful way and to see our lives count for very much as we continue to serve His purposes together. And so Peter, wrapping up his exhortation on the suffering of the Christian, giving reason, giving sense, encouraging us to endure, telling us that it's going to be worth it, reminding us of our destiny and where we're headed, that Jesus is coming, the end of all things is at hand. Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, as we uh, just come to the close of this time in your word. And, And Father, we're thankful for the things that you've laid out before us, for the scripture and and for the light that it gives to us. We thank you for the comfort, Lord, to know that no matter what suffering we're experiencing right now, there's footprints on the path in front of us, that we're on ground that's been walked many times, that Jesus, you yourself, walked it. And so we pray tonight, Father, that as you've spoken, as we believe that you've come into this place, Lord, we ask that any adjustment that needs to be made within our heart or in our life, any separation that still needs to happen between us and the world, any place, Lord, where our spiritual senses have become dull or atrophied because of the sin that we've compromised in or the double life that we've been 
carrying along with us, partially in heaven, but living still for the affections of earth. Oh Lord, we would pray tonight that you would help us by your grace and that you would cause us, Lord, to be set free from the things of this world. For the time past of our lives suffices us, Lord. We no longer want to live according to the will of the Gentiles. Oh Lord, we want to be sober and watch unto prayer and separate from this world. And so tonight, Lord, I'm asking that right now, as your spirit is present, as your word is spoken, as your will has been revealed, Father, I pray that your light would shine into every heart. I ask that you would put your finger on the place or the the thing in us, Lord, that still has yet to be broken or separated. And that, Lord, by your grace tonight, you would set us free from those things. Lord, we pray that our senses would be quickened and revived and alive. Lord, that you'd open our eyes and our understanding, that you'd soften our hearts, that you'd give us a perception, that we'd have the ability to taste and see heaven, Lord. Father, if you don't do these things, then we're resigned to live in mediocrity, in our sins, Lord, in the lowerness of our nature, our old nature. But tonight, Lord, we desire more. We ask for more. So please, Lord Jesus, meet with us right here tonight. Let this be more than a service. Oh Lord, as we sing this song, come into this place. Lord, seal the things that you've spoken, that we'd be completely sanctified, set apart for your honor and for your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close tonight, if there's anyone here that maybe you don't know Jesus Christ personally, you have yet to come to that place where you see the vanity and the futility of the the will of the Gentiles, of the old life. You have yet to to call on the name of the Lord and to be given citizenship in heaven free of charge. Your sin has been judged on Christ. There's nothing, nothing that can hold you back, hold him back from forgiving. There's nothing that you've done or that you can do that isn't forgiven in the person of Christ. He asks us to call on him, to bend the knee. The Bible says that whosoever falls upon this rock will be broken. But if that rock falls upon you, it says you'll be crushed to powder. If you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ personally, I would encourage you during this last song, maybe you just want to rise to your feet and just come forward and bow the knee just between you and God. No one's going to talk to you or touch you. You come and you say, God, I, I want my life to be yours. I want to live my life for you. I no longer want to be in the clutches of Satan. You have the opportunity to break the chain tonight. The power of God helping you. Maybe you're here tonight and there's just something in your life. You say, God, I need to, I need this chain broken. I want to leave it at the altar. I want to live for you. No more. No longer, Lord, do I want to live according to the, to the life of the Gentiles. It's open. You can come. It's free. It's, it's not magic. It's not hocus pocus. It's just a way for you to put feet to what God is speaking to your heart. So let's stand together and sing this song and come up. When you're done, just return to your seat. Let's let's close together.